if you want to see Genesis one as creation of nothing, you know, sure. But I don't know that that's how uh, in the Near East it would have been understood. A lot of times we want to say, oh, this is a metaphor, but I don't think that the original audience would have just said this is just metaphor. They, I think, you know, the the rhetorical force here is that like God has overcome the sea monsters before. I think Genesis is really complicated, but with a lot of layers, really a lot of layers to it. Hey everyone, this is What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today I'm on with Philip from Beneath the Bible, and we're going to be talking about Genesis 1. We're going to be talking about the dating. We're going to be talking about Leviathan. We're going to be talking about rainbows. Are they in the Bible? We'll see. We'll see what Philip thinks on it. Uh, Philip, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what your background is? Yeah. Hey, hey, Zach. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. My name is Philip Webb. I'm an archaeologist. I have my PhD in archaeology. I live in, in DFW Texas with uh, my wife and four kids and I uh, do co-host uh, Beneath the Bible with uh, my other co-host Kyle. And can you tell us like what your what your background is as far as uh, school and education and all that? Sure I uh, so I started this uh, college studying history and then after that I wanted to do more so I went to grad school got a terminal master's in ancient and medieval history uh, and from there, I decided to uh, change directions a bit, and I pursued my PhD in uh, archaeology. I studied, and my dissertation research uh, was on the Bronze Age collapse. I have my super fancy dissertation title, uh, Disaggregation and Regeneration of Sociopolitical Complexity on Cyprus in the Early Iron Age, which... Uh, doesn't mean much of anything other than I developed, I looked at uh, Cyprus, the island of Cyprus in the early Iron Age, and uh, looked at sociopolitical collapse through the lens of complexity theory. So if you want a copy, I can send you one. <laughs> and what have you done since then as far as like work and all that? So I am... Uh, uh, kind of on staff. I work on an excavation project in Cyprus at the site of Corion. I'm actually going to be heading out there in about a week. Uh, so we were excavating a late Roman site uh, there uh, with my old uh, doctoral advisor. Uh, and I've been kind of running uh, beneath the Bible with Kyle. Um, and I'm mostly stay-at-home dad, really. it's I kind of get to study what I want to study and um, pursue what I want to pursue. And I get to hang out with my boys. So I, I have it pretty good as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so what what you're doing right now? Do you end up like writing a lot of papers? Yeah, I have a couple uh, papers that I'm working on, uh, a couple longer, um, which we might get into some of the, what I'm working on here in a little bit. Um, but there's a paper that I presented a couple years ago that um, is still working towards being published. Um, I have um, working on our... Uh, lamp collection that the excavations found. So I'll be working on that for our uh, excavation publication. A couple other papers that are in various states of um, readiness for publication. So I've got a couple couple of things, but uh, the wheels of academia move slowly. So um, yeah, I got some I got some things working on, but you know, we'll see we'll see if uh, what happens with any of them. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. All right. <clears throat> so let's just get into it. Um, I want to talk about your, your general opinions as far as like just the book of Genesis, dating, Torah, 
um, whether you think it's historical, um, genealogies, whether like whether literal or symbolic, whatever. Um, just wondering your your opinions on those kind of things. Sure. Um, so I I do think Genesis is history. Um, there's this famous historian who defines a a uh, Dutch, I think he's Dutch, Dutch historian, who defines history as the intellectual form in which a civilization renders account to itself of its past. So that, you know, if that is what history is, but I think that's a fair, uh, in fact, pretty good assessment of what history is. I think Genesis is certainly history. Uh, but I think the question of is, is Genesis history, I think what's tied up in that a lot of times is um what is the historicity of it versus um, people are, I think in general, the concern is like what actually happened of it. What would, as we understand history as an academic or journalistic sense of history, which is different than a near Eastern sense of history. Then I think, I think that's like the core of that. A lot of times, I don't know if that's kind of what you're hinting at or not, but um, I think that's kind of at the core of what a lot of these questions about Genesis as history are about is what's the historicity of it? What what happened? What didn't happen? And I think that's a much more complicated question because I think um, there are certainly elements of Genesis that would be what we would call historical. I think there are other elements that follow a more mythic pattern and um, and I don't mean that I don't mean mythic in a pejorative sense in any sense uh, have a very positive view of myth and mythic patterns and mythic history. So um, but as far as the dating of Genesis, I think it's I, I really like talking about this. And I think Genesis is a really complicated book uh, with a lot of layers, really a lot of layers to it. Um, and there's uh, biblical scholars will have have their formulations of it uh, with the documentary hypothesis and JEDP and all that kind of stuff. And there's, there's a lot of merit to that. Um, archaeologists can have a somewhat different uh, take on that. Uh, but, um, you know, in general, I think that there's a lot of merit to the documentary hypothesis, but when you kind of dig into Genesis, that you see elements that are earlier and you see elements that are clearly later um, for example, the, um, you know, the Arameans are, or, you know, Laban of Aram, um, you know, the table of Genesis, they talk about a lot of these places, these place names that really are not, um, of any significance until the iron age. Um, the Arameans do not really differentiate themselves as a, a distinct people group until after 1200. Uh, and yet, we have uh, Laban, I think it's Laban, um, speaking Aramaic. Um, there's this recognition of the boundary between, um, you know, Israel and Arameans. Um, so this is seems to be a reflection of ninth century uh, historical world. Um, the table of nations in Genesis 11. Uh, there's, you know, the, the story of... Um, I'm one, I can only think of Ninurta, and that's Nimrod, who is probably Ninurta. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Nimrod talks about where he founds all these cities, and one of them is um, there's Nineveh and Kala, 
uh, which he calls the great city. And Kala is only the great city of Nineveh after Ashur and Nasser Paul II. So this is the ninth century. Um, you know, this would seem to be a ninth century tradition. Uh, you can, you know, this is, uh, some people say, well, this is, uh, if this is written by Moses, the prophet, he could have predicted all of this, um, which, you know, sure. But also, this could also be, I think, my understanding, it's more likely that this uh, is reflecting um, different historical periods. Uh, if that does that make, I don't know if that makes sense, that there's the realities that are being um, expressed in the text. And there's different ones, you know, the, um, the blessing of um, Jacob's blessing of his sons has very archaic language. Um, but even blesses Judah, there's, there's pretty strong foreshadowing that the king will be from Judah. And so is this, is this prophetic or is this a reflection of, um, you know, Davidic? Is this, is this when there's a Davidic king? So is this, you know, uh, late Iron One, early Iron Two, like 10th century or later? Um, and there's also these words that show up in Genesis that uh, are loan words or um, phrases that show up in Second Temple uh, Judaism that it doesn't mean that the entire text dates to that period, just that they were maybe reworking part of the text. So I, again, I don't, I'm kind of talking in circles a little bit. I think there's this really long pattern of textual development in Genesis that certainly uh, I think can go back, at least the textual part can at least go back to the 10th century through the 6th century. Um, but then I think there's also uh, oral traditions and cultural memories that go back much earlier than that. Uh, the, the itineraries of the patriarchs, for example, um, you know, you can put the patriarchs historically, maybe in the middle bronze age and they're moving up and through the Jordan Valley, which, uh, if you look at the settlement patterns in the Middle Bronze Age, you have massive amounts of uh, settlements in the Jordan Valley and along the coastal plain. And this seems to be, uh, it fits well with the patriarchal narratives um, where where Abraham's going and all that kind of stuff. You know, I is, you know, Abraham stands at I with Laban and, you know, I is a ruin and, you know, that would fit well with Middle Bronze Age. It also fit well later. I, the, the site of Etel, uh, is an early Bronze Age site. It was, you know, it was a ruin. You could see, you could see it was a ruin. So there's there's stuff that could fit well with you know, these cultural memories that could go back into the Bronze Age. But I think a lot of the written part of Genesis um, fits pretty well with Iron Age situations. I don't know if that makes, that's clear or not. Um, but it's, it's a lot of picking it's like picking these phrases out of these passages and be like, this, this feels like it's iron age. This, this fits the iron age pretty well. Um, and then the question is how much of that passage fits, you know, cause I'm, I'm quite comfortable with, um, that Genesis changed and evolved over time and, um, crystallizes into the text that we would recognize in the exilic period when, I think a lot of the text of the Old Testament crystallizes into what we recognize then, but using much earlier Iron Age textual sources. Genesis 1, for example, I think is traditionally called, you know, the priestly creation account. I think there were other, I think there were multiple creation accounts circulating amongst the Israelites and the Judahites. 
in that uh, Genesis one is perhaps the last, you know, the final word on it. Psalm one hundred four, I think, is a much earlier creation account. Genesis one follows the pattern of Psalm one hundred four. Um, so I, I think Genesis one is this uh, the more refined final iteration of of the creation account and harmonizes with all the other ones um and again i don't don't know if that causes theological problems or people i'm not a theologian kyle my co-host kyle will tell you that (laughs) i am no theologian um but uh yeah i think it's a really fascinating text and looking at you know archaeologists we love our our layers our strata and so you can you can look at the text that way that these different strata within the text and i think it's a really fun um really interesting exercise to sort of excavate the text that way and look at the different strata that are present and see how god um you know reveal different things at different times and, and, and you know now we have Genesis, which I think is one of the most incredible pieces of literature, you know, in the world. So, yeah. So you mentioned Genesis. Uh, sorry, Psalm one hundred four, and I'd love to talk about that if you want to um, show us what you think about it. Um, Psalm one hundred four is has just been um, scholarship has long recognized that this is about creation, uh, and it. I, I think it's earlier than Genesis one. Um, there's, it also has long been connected with the hymn of Aten, the Egyptian text that there are pretty strong parallels with that. And so, um, I think the only question is what is the nature of those parallels, uh, between, between the Egyptian text and Psalm 104. Um, but I think Psalm 104 is interesting because it has this very functional view of, uh, creation, you know, these God, makes things and then the purpose of those things is sort of given there um you know i think the particularly interesting one is you know he makes grapes for the enjoyment of man um you know leviathan shows up uh in in psalm 104 too uh psalm 104 as well um but it's uh you know these sea monsters which also show up in genesis 1 but they, you know, God puts them in Psalm 104, 26, you know, uh, it, God puts Leviathan in the sea for it to frolic there. You know, it's, it's not this uh, dangerous monster by any sense. It's, uh, you know, just a part of creation that God has put into the sea, um, which is also kind of what you see in Genesis 1, that God uh, makes the, the great sea monsters and, they're all commanded to be fruitful and multiply, which is really an incredible countercultural statement in Genesis one. But and I uh, I don't have it like in front of me, or I don't can't be super clear. But um, people have uh, scholars have brought out the the parallels between Genesis one and Psalm one hundred four, and that um, the movement of the order that things are made sort of mimic one another um, between Psalm 104 and Genesis 1. Uh, and then Psalm 104 is much more explicit, I think, in the understanding of uh, it's explicit in its Near Eastern uh, cosmology, right? The, uh, um, you know, the uh, upper chambers 
uh, his beam he laces the beams of his upper chambers on their waters um you know up and there's this clearer sense of that god is residing up above the firmament um you know the foundations of the earth and the watery deep and um it's the the near eastern um understanding of of the world is, is a little more explicit in Psalm 104 than it is in Genesis 1, but I think it's also in Genesis 1. Referring to like the conflict idea of, um, so Genesis 1, it seems like there's almost no conflict, but there's hints of it. And then, um, and then you're saying like in 104, like it's more obvious, but it's still not like where like the, you know, you got Leviathan being cut in two kind of thing. Yeah. Like it, well, in Psalm 104, the, um, I think it's clearer that how the how the Israelites understood the world, um, that their map of the world, in a sense, is clearer than it is in Genesis one. Um, but to, like with the conflict thing, I, it's it's notable that there's no conflict in either Genesis one is really interesting because it, it's setting up that conflict right with Tahom is is right there at the beginning, um, and. With so there's this uh, you know how linked are to home and Tiamat? Uh, are they the same thing? Are they different? Um, I am of my opinion is that they share a common root. I don't think that to home is like you know the Hebrew translation of Tiamat or anything like that. But I think they are both. They go back to a common root. There's a really good dissertation uh, on this subject on a UCLA um, that kind of gets into that. Um, but yeah, I think to home is, you know, it's right there and, and, you know, God's spirit is over the surface of the deep. Right. And it's setting up, like you're expecting this conflict, you're expecting combat right there at the beginning and then it never happens. Uh, and so that, that conflict is missing. Um, and then uh, if I can just go into this, um, the idea of the sea myth or the combat myth. Um, so my, my understanding of this is you, in most Near Eastern creation accounts, there is combat or conflict. And out of that conflict uh, emerges the ordering God who, um, as they emerge out of that conflict, they create the world, they're made king of the gods, and they are owed a temple. Uh, you see this pretty clearly in uh, Babylonian Enuma Elish. You see it also in the Baal cycle. Um, but you also see it in Genesis 1, except there's no conflict. There's, uh, you know, Yahweh comes out. God is just uh, sovereign from the beginning. Uh, Tahom is present, but not a threat. The sea monsters are present, but uh, and totally subdued. Uh, not, no real threat to God. And so, uh, and you know, John Walton has done a really good job looking at um, these, all these other patterns uh, in Genesis one with the temple, the temple idea. Um, rest, you know, on in Genesis two one that the God rests on day seven, uh, and that this the idea of rest, God's rest when they're in their temple. So there, but I, I think you see all of the all, all all of these things other than conflict in Genesis one temple kingship, mm-hmm. um, temple kingship and creation, obviously. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. That's very fascinating. So, kind of on that thought, if if you're saying that you know some of these would you, would you say that um, that other like creation texts, um, some we'll we'll talk about specifically like regarding Leviathan and all that, do you think those were also possibly before Genesis one? For sure, yeah. Um, 
I mean, Ugarit, the Ugaritic Baal cycle. Um, so Ugarit was destroyed at the end of the Bronze Age. Um, this is, it's one, you know, one of the fatalities of the Bronze Age collapse and the city was destroyed. And in the destruction, the clay tablets in the Temple Baal were burned and preserved. And so we have a pretty solid, um, you know, late, late 13th century date on those. The Enuma Elish, um, those, you know, the, the fullest readings of those, the, the tablets are relatively late, um, but pretty much everybody agrees those go much earlier. There's a really interesting debate, at least I think, uh, I think this is interesting. It might be uh, my nerd coming out. Um, but there's this debate of um, to what extent does the Enuma Elish uh, rely on the West Semitic, the, the Canaanite or Ugaritic, uh, tradition because you know Babylon doesn't it's not by the sea um, you know if you go south to the Persian Gulf there would have been marshland before you get to the Persian Gulf and it's really far away from the Mediterranean so why is the sea this great big you know chaotic force uh, in in Babylonian myth it makes sense why it is Ugarit and in the Canaanite city-states right because they're maritime you know maritime cities so uh, they have very familiar, very familiar with the sea, and so. But why is why is Babylon have this? The flood makes perfect sense. Why that? Why Babylon has so many flood stories? Because the you know, Tigris and Euphrates are um, have very ferocious floods, and um, so you, you can understand how they would have flood narratives. But um, there's a Finnish scholar who she, I think, has brought up a good point that it's possible that. Um, that the sea, the sea myths, or the the conflict myths in Babylon, enter into the Mesopotamian or East Semitic world after Sargon the Great. Um, he he uh, builds his empire and he famously dips his um, dips his weapons in the North Sea and the South Sea, and so he and has this empire from essentially the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean. And after after Sargon is when you start to see, or at least Shiaris, and I think quite rightly, that you start to see these sea myth uh, patterns showing up in in Mesopotamian uh, mythic traditions. So there's this interesting debate about um, how much of the Enuma Elish really is derivative of West Semitic mythic traditions and so then is genesis one it has pretty clear you when you read it and you read enuma elish there's there seems to be a lot um that genesis one is perhaps playing off of it's at least aware of and so the question is uh is there is it sort of like the west west semitic traditions coming into the east semitic traditions and then genesis one is playing off of those or is it um that Genesis one is really just in dialogue with other West Semitic traditions. Uh, you know, we have the Ugaritic Baal cycle, but we don't really have, and you know, this is kind of a, a problem with talking about Canaanite mythology. We don't really have Canaanite mythology. We have the Ugaritic mythology. And the assumption is that it's roughly analogous to Canaanite mythology, which we don't, we don't know if it is or isn't. I it probably is, but uh, you know, what kind of, uh, creation account did the people of Tyre and Sidon tell and how similar to you know to the Ugritic story is it um so there's we're, we have these gaps in our understanding of these different mythic traditions and so how is Genesis 1 interacting with them um you know we just have gaps in that in that knowledge and we're still figuring out some of these some of these things so 
there's I, they have a lot of questions. There's a lot of a lot of times you'll see people very confident about like, oh, Genesis one and Enuma Elish, hundred percent. It's like, well, it's yeah, perhaps yeah, but it's it's really very complicated. You know, the the interaction between Genesis one and all of the other Near Eastern creation accounts. It's it's really complex, and I think it's it's really I enjoy diving into it and trying to disentangle it. But it's not really my my expertise. I really enjoy you know looking at it because genesis one is and you know i i think is very clearly interacting with these other mythic traditions but it's it's really distinct from them you know it's it's not so much what it has in common with them because there's a lot it has in common but it, where it's different it's it's glaring you know the lack of conflict for one um you know that Yahweh is entirely sovereign from the beginning. That the entire cosmos is His temple, so there's no room for any other deities there. Um, you know, it's it's very clear and explicit. You know, like the greater light and lesser light being, you know, not named. They're not gods. And um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting text and in how it's interacting with these other other mythic traditions. Sorry if I'm talking in circles. <laughs> no, no, that's awesome. Um, so. I have, that, I have two ideas, two questions that come off of that. One, so you mentioned how, you know, these, these other creation texts and Psalms probably date back earlier, but obviously, you know, we're, we're, what we're doing here is we are looking at the text, seeing how they compare with, I guess, other texts, maybe looking inside the text to see like uh, what exactly in the, is in that so we can date it. But, you know, with Genesis, you have like these places, you have names, but you know, in these creation texts and Psalms, it's it's not exactly like that. Like typically there isn't like some a specific name or place. Um now Genesis one, you know, you have you know it's it's put in the front of the Bible, um, when that was put in front of the Bible or by Moses or whatever. That's a that's a different question. But like I guess why why would you say that why like why can't Genesis one be early? what I guess is the question for me. Um, part of, there are a number of ways I think you could um, tackle this. Um, one way biblical scholars at least will look at th this is that they, um, that they will look at biblical Hebrew um, and they have archaic Hebrew, classical Hebrew and late Hebrew, right? And it's, you know, kind of roughly, roughly analogous to, you know, we have old English, middle English, modern English and it's it's all English but it's very clearly different um and it's it's less pronounced in Hebrew than it is you know like the difference between modern English and old English is like they're unintelligible um it's not the same way in Hebrew right that but biblical scholars will look at the Hebrew in Genesis and say okay this a lot of the Hebrew in Genesis is classical Hebrew it's eighth ninth century and the archaic Hebrew is um you know, 10th century. And so if you look at Genesis one, it's more like classical Hebrew than it is archaic Hebrew. And so if, if the language in Genesis one is much, has much more in common with the Hebrew of, um, you know, maybe the eighth century than, than earlier. So that's, but that would be more of just when it was written down. If you want to say that this is a much earlier oral tradition, you know, that's, that's different. Um, you know, oral tradition is hard to pin down 
on on dating um but you know like a lot of uh, you know the uh, anuma elish like if it's from the library of ashurbanipal like you like we can date the context where the tablets were found you know um so for some of these texts like we can we can specifically date you know we can say okay like we found it here so at least dates at least dates it's at least this old um and then you know dating the enuma elish is is tricky um because it seems to be this um there's this political agenda to it of elevating marduk above the other gods and so um why would they want to do that and when would they want to do that so the generally when you're dating the enuma elish it's okay when was when do we see a resurgence of marduk worship and so that's um sixth century with the chaldean empire or you can have it in like the 11th century there are a couple of times um in the earlier iron age when it seems like there's you know marduk worship is being revived and so it could be the enemy states that early it could be um relatively late um so that you know that's kind of that's how a lot of these texts are dated is like well when when would this what what this text is doing when would this have been important to say this um so you know the enuma elish and a couple other of these uh, creation accounts they're they're dated that way and in genesis 1 um it so it's generally you know uh, the p source or the priestly creation account and so you know the premise in the documentary hypothesis, right, is that these, these different strands, these different textual traditions that um, are, you know, like the the best example is the J source, the the Yahweh source. If you pull out the text in the Pentateuch that use the name of Yahweh, it creates a fairly coherent narrative. And the priestly source has some people think it's the redactional layer. It's like stitching all of these things together. It's a really good book came out a few years ago. Um, which I can send you the citation. I can send you the PDF if you want. Um, that makes a good argument that the priestly material also is coherent, that it all hangs together very pretty well. If you just look at just the what is traditionally called P source material, it all hangs together pretty well. And so Genesis 1 would be a part of that um, body of literature. And so when when the question would then be is when does the when did the priests put together this body of literature? When was it important for them to compile all this literature? And it's usually, um, you know, it's uh, when worship is centralized in Jerusalem or after the temple is destroyed and they're trying to preserve um, these ritual texts um, in the exile. So that's one reason it's uh, Genesis one is traditionally dated to sixth century ish um but you know you, there's lots of issues people have lots of issues with documentary hypothesis and you know there's a lot of academics who don't buy into all of it so um yeah it it's it's hard it's it can be hard to date texts in the bible um in part because it's we're dealing with copies of copies of copies of copies we don't really have the original you know we don't really like we don't have the jerusalem archive right you know if david and solomon kept an archive we just don't have it you know it'd be awesome if we did it'd clear up a lot of things probably confuse a lot more things than it cleared up but um we would have you know we would have some some more answers which would be really fun <laughs>
Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, <clears throat> so, so you mentioned how, well, one, you mentioned um, the hymn of Aten. So <clears throat> kind of how it's similar to Psalm 104. Um, but as in my research that I've been studying, you know, these other creation myths and how they compare Genesis 1, I've noticed that there are some scholars that think that the relation of Genesis 1 to other Egyptian texts is way more than the Enuma Elish or any other creation texts. Um, and, and they mentioned like, you know, the order of things, specific things that are mentioned, like, you know, spirit and all these other things. Um, like, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, why would the Egyptian texts not be more similar than the others? Yeah, that's a, I mean, I don't, I don't have a good answer um, for that. It's very clear to me that there are certain Egyptian texts that have very strong influence on certain biblical texts, right? There, the hymn of Aten in Psalm 104, um, the, what is it, instruction of Amenenope um, is almost verbatim uh, quoted in Proverbs. So there, it's very clear that they're familiar, the Israelites, the Hebrew, you know, Judahites, whoever, are familiar with Egyptian literature, some Egyptian literature. So the the kind of hang up with the Egyptian religion, Egyptian literature is that Egyptian religion is so closely connected to the land of Egypt that it's it doesn't like it doesn't travel well, if that makes sense. Um, you know, Baal is kind of um, he can you know wherever it rains, you can kind of see people worshiping Baal. Um, but it's it's hard, you know, like the Nile god, you know, the god of the Nile. Like you're not going to see you know, him being worshipped outside of the Nile. So just in general, Egyptian Egyptian religion doesn't travel well. Egyptian culture, it, it, Egyptian cultural artifacts do. You see scarabs uh, all over archaeologically. Um, they travel a long ways. They People would make these scarabs, these little like seals that are in the shape of like a scarab, like a dung beetle. And then they carve hieroglyphs in them and you'll get these you know, uh, scarabs that have like nonsense hieroglyphics on them because they're just mimicking Egyptian culture, but they don't necessarily have a very good understanding of Egyptian culture, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, I don't know specifically about Genesis one and Egyptian texts. It's, uh, you know, very clear to me that the, the authors of the Bible, some authors of the Bible were familiar with Egyptian literature. So it's, um, you know, there's, there's this, uh, kind of dilemma with finding parallels in the text of like, okay, there's a really good, uh, an interesting article about comparing, we're going to go a bit further afield, um, comparing the David and Goliath story with, uh, the Iliad, um, and that there's this, uh, combat between two heroes right there's david and goliath on one hand we're gonna whoever wins is going to be the victor right and so people said oh this sounds a lot like uh hector and achilles and their combat and it's like okay they're these similar tropes but you kind of have to show that you can't just say like yeah these um these two like one is copying the other you kind of have to show like the author of one was familiar with the other one and had access to the other one. And it was culturally relevant enough that they would copy it over. Um, and so you get that, 
you know, part of part of why there may be these parallels between Egyptian creation accounts and Israelite ones is um, this is how is you know this is how creation accounts are told, um, and you can you could argue the same thing with you know, the the Baal cycle or the end of Elish that you know this is the this is how you tell cosmology and the ancient Near East, and so the Israelites are doing it. Uh, they're they're sticking to that genre and that form, um, and they're not necessarily like having you know they're like writing it out with you know the copy of the all cycle right there and like oh this is you say this well we're going to change it this way it's, it could just be that this is how it's how it's told how it's written um, we know there's a lot of texts that we just aren't preserved and um, so again there's there's those holes in our knowledge so all that to say. Um, yeah, there, there may be very good parallels between Egyptian and Israelite uh, creation accounts, but I can't speak to them specifically, but all that to say, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, hey, that's not helpful. That's than, <laughs> no, that's better than saying, um, it's better than trying to talk about something you don't know. Um, but uh, so something I've been meaning to talk about. So your your specialty is kind of the, the Bronze Age, Bronze Age collapse. Um, so this may or may not be out of your uh, wheelhouse here, but the Genesis text, specifically something like Genesis four twenty two, says that um, there were iron. You know, uh, there was iron used to forge instruments. But you know, this this may, might be my lack of intelligence here. But um, if bronze wasn't or if iron, if sorry, if iron wasn't used before the Bronze Age, then I, would this be like a really key way to say that this this specific part was definitely dated later? Yeah, I think um, so. The the Bronze Iron, um, you know, we call it the Iron Age. We call it the Bronze Age, and these are you know our modern periodization terms, um, and it's because you you see more iron implements in what we call the iron age than in the bronze age but you still see you know um there still is iron working in the bronze Age. it's not common but you'll see it it was used um like in jewelry it, it's not it's not used for weaponry or you know, in the iron age you'll find like iron iron spearheads iron plows like it was in greater quantities so it was used for um more mundane implements uh and but you see in the Bronze Age that they did have iron. It's just uh, the technology wasn't as widespread um, to work iron versus bronze. Um, well, my you know, expertise on Cyprus. Cyprus uh, is a very interesting island, and it has huge copper reserves. And so copper was uh, very important on Cyprus, and Cyprus shipped out huge quantities of copper all throughout the Near East. And... Um, this may be part of the reason why you uh, don't see bronze being used because bronze is uh, copper and uh, copper and zinc, copper arsenic uh, alloy. So you see uh, iron showing up more after Cyprus um, essentially collapses and they're not shipping out copper anymore. That So this is a kind of chicken and egg issue of does Cyprus stop shipping out copper because everybody else collapses and there's no market for it or is something you know something go sideways on cyprus and they can't ship out as much copper and um i think it's probably because the international market dries up that cyprus stops shipping it out but um 
yeah the the transition between iron um between bronze copper and bronze working to iron is a interesting uh discussion interesting debate it's um robert drews wrote this very controversial book where he suggests that um iron weapons uh kind of made a lot of the the bronze age uh military techniques obsolete right if you can you can make an iron sword longer than you can make a bronze one because iron's harder and so you can just have the he argues that you have this uh technological advantage with iron weapons over bronze ones. I, I don't know that he's right i don't think that he's right um that well i think i don't think he's right in the sense that that's what ends the bronze age uh but he makes a good point about how iron is superior to bronze in a number of ways that can hold um it can you can make longer weapons and you know an iron sword can be longer than a bronze sword and um and iron is much more readily available uh you you can find you just need to find a, a you know, iron ore and you can make iron if you have if you can get a furnace hot enough you know if uh, you don't need copper for it and copper is harder to come by uh copper was shipped you know from cyprus to the palaces of the other near eastern states so there's a, a kind of a democratization with iron uh that is interesting but uh, again that's a bit of a tangent but when you see iron being mentioned in genesis uh, typically um it's yeah this is probably pointing to this being a later a later text but it doesn't have to be you do see um you do see some iron working in the bronze age but it, it was like i said it's like jewelry um you get you get some really weird stuff in the bronze age um a, king tut i think had like a sword made of meteorite like you know you get you get weird stuff bronze age was weird so recently i heard some random person on the internet talk about how the bible has super sophisticated tools and weapons and uh specifically in genesis based off this text so uh can you clarify that this text is not evidence for a super early date of Genesis. Yeah, I, I would not hang my hat on um, a very early date of Genesis based off of one one reference to iron. That I would I I would not do that. Okay, personally. All right, cool. <laughs> other people do all other right. things with the text all the time that I wouldn't do, but fair enough. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's keep going. Um, so yeah, you mentioned uh, in other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, there are you know, there are a lot of there are a few themes that go together typically, creation, table building, and some type of conflict between the gods. In the ball cycle, there's conflict and building of a temple, but there's no mention of creating. And you know, I'm so I'm reading through the ball cycle, looking at different connections with Genesis 1, and all of a sudden, I come across this huge debate over like what exactly this is. Um, can you talk about how your view of like, is this creation or is it not in the ball cycle? Sure. So um, in the ball cycle, L is uh, called the creator God. It's pretty clear that he's, um, he, L is, you know, the father of the gods. He's um, the one that ever, that is credited with being the creator for however that, whatever that means. Um, and then as the Baal cycle develops, um, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's told in three, 
three stories. The first uh, is the conflict with Yom or the sea. Um, Yom comes into uh, the court of El and he's this uh, bombastic character. And there, there's this conflict with Baal. And Baal and his allies fight Yom and his allies, including um, Leviathan, which we can talk about uh, in a bit. Um, but he defeats Yom. And then in the second uh, story, it's uh, Baal um, wants to build a temple. So he's going to El to get permission to build a temple. He uh, has Anat, his Baal's wife, goes and she is, is supposed to be diplomatic and fails terribly. Um, and then they get Asherah, the wife of El, um, convinces El that Baal should build a temple. And so that um, Baal builds this temple and we get a description of the temple and um he yeah it's so there's he builds a temple in the second story and then in the third he is his combat with death with with moat and um i believe we're missing the end of that story that these are fragmentary stories we don't have the end um but as the the as baal and moat go in and fight uh el has this dream where he sees what the world will be uh, if Baal is not returned to the land of Lily, the living and is not made the king of the gods and it's um, the land is suffering, the land is dry and parched. And um, so he comes to Moat and he says, I will not support you. Basically, I won't support you as king of the gods. You have to let Baal be the king of the gods. So it's not clear, you know, it's, it's there's none of this uh, like splitting of Yom to make the the earth where like that's all the world is is pretty much all already there um and so in there are a number of ways that people interpret the ball cycle and the cosmogenic reading um would would see that one when ball builds a temple um there's uh, and again john walton talks about this there's a number of other scholars talk about how the building of a temple is to like build this to build a universe in a sense and so that this is there's there's a sense that this is like a create there's a creative act in the building of the temple um so that's that's there but also there's this sense of um this distinction between creatio prima and creatio continua that that l may be the initial the initial creator god but but all is the one who sustains it and that this sustaining of creation is a no less creative act than the initial act of creation by l and so this is you know the um that baal is the one who sustains creation from his temple that, that hits this um and this is this is kind of hinted at in genesis uh genesis 2 where god rests uh he re and rest is always done in a temple and rest is, um, you know, there's a different perspectives on what divine rest is. Um, but I, I think there's something to this idea that rest is the resumptum, resumption of normative behavior, resumption of normative, uh, normative things. And so this is the sustaining of creation in a sense. So in Genesis 1, you, you could see both the creatio prima and creatio continua, that this initial creative act and then the sustaining of it is, is done as part of God's rest. Uh, and in the Baal cycle, that's, uh, if there is a creative component to it, it's probably that creatio, pre, uh, creatio continua of Baal, um, you know, and Elsie's, if Baal is not allowed to be the king of the gods, then the world will suffer and die. 
and so Baal is the is sustaining it and so that's um that is uh there's a book myth history and metaphor uh by Paul Cho who uh, outlines that um I really like Paul Cho's formulation of it I think he's he's spot on on a number of things at least right so that gets into kind of like what exactly is creation so I mean, the average American will, when they see Genesis 1, they'll be like, okay, material creation, someone like John Walton doesn't think it's material creation. Someone like John Walton thinks it's some type of bringing disorder to disorder, disorder to order or non-order, whatever. What would you say about that? Yeah, um, the creation, you know, creation of nothing, I think, is is biblical, uh, I think, you know, like John Walton, it's like you get, I, but I think you can get it out of Colossians. You don't need to get it out of uh, Genesis 1. Because um, uh, this, I've run into this a couple of times where you get these, uh, you look up, you know, what is the word that is used for, you know, God made this, uh, like, I think it's bara. Yep. Bara, mm -hmm. and he made this. And so you look it up in the lexicon and it's like this, it has all the different, meanings and it's like well in genesis one it means to make out of nothing because in genesis one it means to make out of, it's this very cyclical like you know the lexicon has this cyclical uh interpretation to it they say the word means something because in this passage it means that and it's like i, I don't know that they've proven that um so ran into this um Kyle and I worked on a thing on um, the the rainbow at the end of the flood, which uh, we can maybe talk about here in a little bit. But, um, you know, the word Keshet, it pretty much always means like a bow, like a hunter's bow or a warrior's bow. Um, except in Ezekiel, there's this reference, this word is used and it means a bow. And they're also like, oh, and um, in Genesis 9, it means a rainbow too, because in Genesis 9, it means a rainbow. Like there's this cyclical, um, like you see this word in the text, you look it up in the lexicon and it says it means something because in this passage, that's what it means. It's not a, I don't know, I don't know if I'm being very clear on this, um, but there's, I think you get that in Genesis one where it's like, you, you start with this theological interpretation that this means creation out of nothing. And so the word then has to mean to make out of nothing even though that's not really how that word is used anywhere else. Um, and so, you know, I, if you want to see Genesis one as creation, I'm nothing. Um, sh you know, sure. But I don't know that that's how uh, in the near East it would have been understood. Okay, I think behind that is sort of sitting right behind that is this assumption that uh, this very materialist, assumption that the matter of the universe is the most real thing and so this is what god has to make at the beginning um and i don't know that that's an assumption that would have been shared in the ancient world um and, and there's much and again i think there's much more interesting things going on in genesis one than the origin of matter you know that's that's a very modern preoccupation um and it's not something that i think was uh, and i wasn't really concerned that was shared uh, with us in the ancient world um they're they're doing much more interesting things in my opinion um with genesis one and the, and the making of the world and i think you've talked about this uh, other times on our channel it's you know it's this separation and naming and 
um, it's, I don't know, it, it seems like there's a lot more going on than just speaking things from nothing into something. There's, you know, separating and pulling what's existing and, and giving it form and function and, and giving it purpose. And go back to Psalm 104, that seems to be how that first, that earlier creation story is told. It's, it's everything is very functional. Uh, and you get that, I think, in Genesis 1, 2, it's a form and function and order are all all tied up into this and 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 the making it out of nothing is sort of like well maybe but maybe not it doesn't to me it doesn't i it, I, I don't i'm not hung up on it um but i get what i fully get why people are and it's a it's a important and valid uh exploration for sure um but i just don't know that th that's necessarily a question or a concern uh for the ancient ancient near eastern world yeah so this is interesting so um there's a text uh i think it's found in babylon it's called when anu began to create the heavens or something like that and it 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 shares its details um and basically it's like it explains how it creates the heavens and the earth and some other stuff and then it creates a bunch of gods so if you look at that specific text, it looks like, okay, it's just, you know, doing creation. Well, until you understand what the God stood for, which we're all building materials, and it's like, okay, that's super interesting. Like, why is it only focused on building stuff? Well, it's describing, like, the, the temple, and apparently it was used to, as, like, a spell or whatever to protect the temple from demons or something like that. And... Um, I, in my next video for uh, Genesis as a temple inauguration, like I'm going to put it at the front, and it's going to be like, like imagine if this was at the front of our Bible instead of like, you know, what we have now. So it's specifically like 104 maybe, where it's more function oriented, and it's like, what if that was at the front of the Bible? Like, would we have different views on it now? Like, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh nothing specific i think that's a really good i mean you, you bring up a very interesting point there that um yeah it, it's part of it is that we don't share we don't share the same worldview which you know so we're thousands of years apart things you know different culture different time um and when we don't share that same worldview like we just miss stuff you know and it's hard to to recover um but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of really interesting things with the, those uh, Mesopotamian temples. And uh, I was just talking with a friend just last night, even um, about there's this uh, Mesopotamian text about like when you remove a tooth for a toothache, like a medical text. But when you do that, like you have to recite part of the creation story because you're like removing, removing the disorder so that the order, the new can come in. You know, and it's like this would is, you know, it's it's not just uh, these stories would, would have been repeated and, um, you know, at New Year's festivals. And um, it's just we, we don't share that same world. And so we we just miss a lot. And, you know, I, I know I'm I it's like every time I kind of go back into studying this, uh, I find something new that's like, oh, I hadn't considered this. Or there's a, another text. You're like, oh, this is you know, this is interesting how how these are similar or, or 
whatever there's you know you, you could you could spend forever in genesis one and it's you know it's it's really genesis is a really incredible <laughs> incredible book so you said how like some of these creation myths would have almost ulterior motives compared to like how we would see it like you know we think of creation we think of oh it's just recounting a historical event at the at the beginning of time which is like okay that's cool if it's historical but i guess like what was the purpose of it and like we don't typically think of like what was the purpose of genesis one or you know any of these other texts so it seems like you're making the the inference that because a lot of these other creation texts were used for other purposes that you'd say that you know genesis one was possibly used for that is that what you're trying to say here well for sure the like the enuma elish is uh you know it's it's called the you know babylonian creation account and a lot of um a lot of mesopotamian scholars kind of don't like that because it's not primarily a creation account right a lot of these creation accounts are not really primarily creation accounts that they um you know the enuma elish was part of the new year's festival and um this is tied up with the re you know the renewal of of the year it's it's uh you know i had this really great conversation with a friend yesterday um this this idea of sacred time and that there these these rituals that were these texts would have been used in the sort of like the community is stepping into sacred time and reenacting these rituals and you're taking part in in these things and it's you know it's not just a story that um that existed it, it was part of um part of at least yearly ritual would have been uh, at least for the mesopotamian stories you know these would have been used um you know like they, they would have been encountered frequently they are again associated with temples and kingship and the renewal of of creation every year and um it's just sorry i'm I'm still, like I said, I, every time I sort of get back into this, you find new things to wrap your head around. And um, I'm not being particularly eloquent or clear here because I'm still wrapping my head around a lot of this idea of sacred time and how these creation accounts would have been uh, incorporated into these festivals and um, and to what extent, and this is kind of an ongoing issue, uh, to what extent did the Israelites have the same sort of New Year's festival, or to what extent would these creation accounts have been um, played out, or had you know what role did they have in um, ritual or liturgy? Uh, that's not entirely clear. Um, I think they probably did have a kind of annual New Year's festival of some sort. I think there are hints of that, particularly in the Psalms. Um, there's some good books that talk about this. Um, because, you know, part of the problem is after the destruction of the temple, uh, some of these rituals are not relevant anymore. Um, so they don't get, uh, preserved in the same way, but you get echoes of them. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's clear that the, some of these creation accounts, uh, were certainly more than just creation accounts that they had much deeper meaning for the communities that produced them. And uh, to what extent Genesis 1 is like that um, is a very good question and I don't have a good answer for. Yeah, no, well, I've been researching um, 
So someone like Jeff Morrow wrote a paper on Genesis as a temple inauguration, but he also talks about how like, you know, the, all the mentions of sevens and like the, um, how it could also be used as a liturgical, liturgical text based on things like in, in day four, where it talks about like making the calendar and like, that's how, that's how, you know, we would track like, you know, how to do the, do the different temple or uh, different festivals and all like that kind of stuff to keep going. Um, so let's move to Psalm 74. Uh, I'm going to pull up here. So, so yeah, there's, I mean, obviously there's other creation texts, other men, there's other mentions of Leviathan and Psalms and other parts of the Bible, mm -hmm. but specifically in Psalm 74, so it says, but God has been my king from ancient times, performing acts of deliverance on the earth. You destroyed the sea by your strength and you shattered the hand, the heads of the sea monster in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You fed him to the people who live along the coast. You broke open the spring and the stream. You dried up perpetually flowing rivers. You established the cycle of day and night. You put the moon and sun in place. You set up all the boundaries of the earth. You created the cycle of summer and winter. So this obviously has a lot of creation language. Um, Leviathan's in there. Um, but it's obviously very different than Genesis one. You mentioned how other parts of Psalms have, you know, are these, you know, possibly these creation accounts other than Genesis. Um, but, you know, most Christians don't think that, you know, at the beginning of time that God was slaying Leviathan, cutting him to or whatever. Like, what do you think is going on here? Right. So, um, I'm going to, this is one of the projects I'm kind of working working through. Um, so this is a Psalm of Asaph, right? There's a handful of these the Psalms of Asaph. And uh, it's, there's, uh, you know, with all things biblical, there's debate about um, who or what the Asaphites are. I think there's a strong case to be made. The Asaphites were a, a Levitical clan. Um, and there's a, a interesting book that, uh, suggest they're from Israel as opposed to Judah and that they were involved in the um, preservation of the Yahwistic liturgy and texts uh, in the Northern kingdom. And that after the fall of the destruction of Bethel, uh, fall of Samaria, fall of the Northern kingdom, the Asaphites come South into Judah. And that is archeologically, it's very clear after the fall of, of Israel, Jerusalem expands quite significantly um, that there's very clearly uh, refugees from the north that come to Judah. And um, so there's one argument then is that this psalm is a, originally would have been a, a composition about the fall of Bethel. Um, traditionally, it's seen as a sort of lament for the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And so what I think is happening here um you know the first part of the psalm is you know all about the destruction of you know it's um you know people coming in and burning down the sanctuary um and then it takes this turn uh in verse 12 you know but god is my king from of old um this this uh this from of old is this euphemism for since since creation and again, so there's a reference to kingship, you know, God is my king. So this is all tied up. It's evoking this sea uh, myth imagery again. And it's it's uh, essentially it's, it's saying like, look, we have encountered chaos. We've encountered disorder um, with the destruction of this temple. 
And so there's this, this beautiful turn, right? In that verse 12 of, but God, my king is from of old. And then it recounts the parts of the Seemeth um, about the destruction of, uh, of Leviathan and splitting open, you know, sp splitting the sea and establishing boundaries. And, um, and so it's, I think it's less a creation account than it is a, uh, you know, it's saying we've encountered chaos uh, here, but I have faith in God that he will, uh, he will overcome the chaos we're experiencing now because he has done it in the past. Um, and I bring up the, the fact that this might be Israelite um, as opposed to Judahite, because it seems the Israelites may have been more comfortable with um, some of these sea myth metaphors with the Leviathan and, um, you know, all, all these, you know, again, sea myth metaphors that we're talking about that they would have been more uh, comfortable in Israel versus Judah uh, and that the influence of the Phoenicians and um, the the Canaanite city states that Israel had more connections with, um, that they, that this may have entered into Israel that way. And, um, again, I don't, I don't know, um, you know, to what extent is this metaphor versus, you know, a lot of times we want to say, Oh, this is a metaphor, but I don't think that the original audience would have just said, this is just metaphor. They, I think, you know, the the rhetorical force here is that like god has overcome the sea monsters before you know god has god has overcome the the forces of disorder um and so if he's done it before he can do it again right and it has this uh in verse 22 rise up oh god and defend your cause this idea that he's resting um when he shouldn't be right you can't god cannot rest um when there's chaos afoot right <laughs> Uh, he has to, he has to rise up and overcome chaos again. Um, and I think that's kind of what's happening. And to me, and I, this may be not kind of what you're getting at, but to me, what's so beautiful about Psalm 74 is this, um, you know, we all encounter chaos, um, various levels. We all encounter at some point in our life and that refrain, God, my King is from of old, um, and he's overcome chaos before, so he can he can rise up and do it again. So I, that's that's why I love Psalm seventy four. Um, I don't know to what extent um, they they see this as uh, you know the creation account that to to what extent this is a, a creation account versus um, you know everybody's familiar with the sea myth, and so this we're citing it here because. Um, every everybody knows it, so we're going to cite it. Um, how much how much of it is that versus how much of this is orthodox uh, Yahwism? Is it you know? I don't know. I don't know how much of this is like the orthodox position versus um, everybody knows these chaos metaphors. Everybody knows this story, so we're we're referencing it here. I don't know if that makes makes sense or not. Um, but uh, you see the like these chaos metaphors get confused too. There's another Psalm where um, it's not clear if they're talking about creation or the Exodus, right? There's um, there it's has this very confusing language where it, some like in one phrase, it seems to be talking about the Exodus and the next line, it seems to be talking about creation and it goes back and forth. 
and it's you know modern interpreters are it's like well is this creation or is this the exodus and i think the point is that it's both right that um you know god that these these uh chaos metaphors are used because god splits the waters and uh you know at the at the beginning of time he splits the waters and makes the world but also in the exodus he splits the waters and he makes israel out of it right that there's the birth of the the creation of the world and the creation of his people that these are conflated and they're entangled in a way that are really not meant to be disentangled. And that's the point, um, which I think is really, it's, it's a very, it makes perfect sense in the ancient world. And it's, it's very hard. It's very hard on my brain to be like, like I want, I want clear, like <laughs> this is creation, this is Exodus. And, um, but yeah, I don't think those are are meant to be disentangled all the time. And so, how much of these metaphors are are being used because people know them and they have cultural salience versus um, this is what was orthodoxy is. I don't know. When That's, you mean I, orthodoxy, I, yeah. I well, was gonna say when you mean orthodoxy, you mean you don't mean like the past two thousand years. You mean before that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so as. Uh, as Yahwism is, you know, there's this, uh, um, yeah, how to, so, you know, the, the prophets have, you know, in classical prophecy, there's all these um, worship at the temple, um, this aniconic uh, version of Yahwism. It's, that's not how Yahwism always was. Um, there's this clear development, right, of, you know, Abraham and the patriarchs, uh, new God by the name of El, and then um, you got, and God reveals His name to Moses, and so there's this development of of Yahweh's, and there's in Exodus is very clear. It's like you know, it's when you when you worship me, build an altar of uncut stones. There's that's there's not. It's clear that they're not meant to only worship at Jerusalem, right? There's there's provisions of how to worship God other places, and so this as as this orthodoxy develops towards centralization at at Jerusalem and it's anaconic and it's, you know, all these different things, um, you know, to what extent the C-Myth, uh, elements of the C-Myth are orthodox or become unorthodox. Like that's, a the development of, of those ideas is, is, uh, not clear to me. I'll say that. I don't know if that clears anything up or not. Yeah. But no, that makes sense. You, you have um, that clear, like, you know, I don't know which way is <laughs> left and right uh, on the screen, but uh, there's this movement from um, it, we move towards Orthodox Yahwism or what the old we have this like coherent Yahwism that we get at the end of the old, by, by the old, by the time the old Testament is solidified, we have this fairly coherent picture of what Yahwism is. And it, it's, you know, but we, we get, we get indications that, you know, there was, Ashra worship and Baal worship and all these kind of other things that were a part of Israelite custom and practice. And so to what extent were certain things tolerated and for how long were they tolerated? Um, and, and, you know, a lot of the Seamith stuff, like this is, this is uh, still, you know, it's, it's part of Christian tradition. Like I think these metaphors of chaos are still relevant. And I, I, I think they're, they're incredibly powerful and incredibly incredibly salient today. Um, I I love talking sea myth stuff, so you're gonna have to stop me before we go on for too long. But I I think I think it's an 
you know, really incredible stuff. And it shows up in a lot of the Psalms and it's, uh, it shows up, you know, it shows up in, um, you know, Jesus calming the waters and, um, you know, it shows up it, uh, early Christian tradition, um, sees this, sees a lot of the sea myth in, you know, like baptism and, um, and, and, the uh, death and resurrection. Like it's these, these old motifs are come back in a big way. Um, and so you see them in, in Genesis, you see them in Psalms and they, I know that's, I'm, I'm, I'm piecing all of this together. Uh, I, 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 uh, came to this, these mythic patterns, mythic traditions relatively late in my, uh, academic study. So I'm still a bit of a novice in where all these stuff come, you know, where, where we see all these things, but, um, I'm having a lot of fun in the exploration of it. So. Hey, that's awesome. And something you mentioned is for like how, you know, you could talk about like, you know, C-Myth and Leviathan and, you know, Genesis 1, like something I like about you guys' channel is that not only do you give this, like, you know, here's the facts, you're, here are what the ancient Israelites might have believed, but, you know, there's also some significance for us. You know, in this case, it's that, you know, chaos, God can conquer that. And um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot of archaeology that's like, you know, that's uh, you know, you you can study this, and it's like, oh, that's neat, I guess. Um, but why do why do people need to know it unless you're an archaeologist? You know, um, and there's a lot of archaeology that people don't need to know. You know, like nobody needs to know cooking pot rim typologies, right? Like nobody needs to know that. I barely need to know that. Um, <laughs> I do. Um, uh, but there's there's a lot of stuff that just is not really relevant to a lot of, you know, to a lot of Christians. But then there there's stuff that I think you can draw important important things out. You know, the, the archaeology and biblical studies that it uh, brings perspectives and um, you know it's part of that culture that you know we're not we're not a part of, and um, it can help. It can help uh, clarify some things. You know, sometimes there's some weird stuff. There's really weird stuff in the Old Testament, right? And um, sometimes archaeology can can be like, oh, well, this is you're kind of missing something here. And and archaeology can provide some of that context that has been really. I've I've really enjoyed uncovering that. You know, it's I I learn something new all the time. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Uh, one more thing I want to talk about before I let you go. Uh, you guys did a really great video on Genesis 9 in regards to the rainbow and, you know, how every every person I've ever talked to growing up who even mentioned this, it's like, you know, it's a sign from God, the, the rainbow in the sky. This is the first time there's ever been a rainbow. And you guys take a different approach to it. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So, you know, alluded to a little bit earlier, um, but everywhere else, this word, you know, God, it says God puts his bow in the sky. Um, and there's a number of scholars have uh, highlighted the sort of tension here. Uh, and we're, we're following uh, other scholars work mostly. We, it's in the, it's in that video description. So I don't have the citations handy. Um, but the, what they highlight is that this reference to the bow everywhere else is um, like a, bow and arrow it's an archer's bow it's a hunter's bow um it's that's how it's pretty much always used in ezekiel one i think 
it's is the only very clear reference to this being a rainbow. It talks about like a, a bow with many colors, right? It's it's clear that this is a rainbow. Um, but these a number of scholars have brought up that just because of the uh, the latitude of of the Near East, uh, they don't get a lot of rainbows. You need the light to refract a particular way. So it's not a particularly common sign. It's not a particularly common phenomenon phenomenon. And it comes after the rain, um, you know, like it's when there's still moisture in the air and the sun hits it, you see the rainbow. Um, so as a sign from God that like I, when I, he says, I'll put my bow in the sky and remember not to destroy the, the earth by water. Um, you would, you know, as uh, on the human side of things, you would hope that that symbol would be present more frequently and before the rain right <laughs> uh you don't want this to either to be rain clouds and then uh later after the rain has finished that there's this uh symbol of you know this sign from god so the a number of scholars have suggested that this is um again because in the flood there's this again the seemeth motifs that this the flood is is in a lot of ways an act of uncreation it's the it's the um the chaotic waters coming back it's to home you know god unleashes to home and the waters come up and uh and so then but then the the waters are subdued again and and god makes this promise not to do that again and so a number of scholars suggest that this is not the rainbow but it's actually god's bow as as if um like a bow and arrow if, if god was a warrior which he's a number of other places depicted as um that this was god's bow that god is putting his bow in in between him and earth so there's you know again in the enuma elish uh marduk's bow is uh, like deified and put in in the heavens as a star it's called the bow star uh, it's part of a uh, constellation and so there's uh, a number of scholars who suggest that uh this this bow that God puts in the heavens between himself and earth is actually a, a constellation or a, a star that would have been visible um, much more frequently than a rainbow would be. So, you know, it's one of those things where if you want to, if, uh, if you're really committed to the rainbow interpretation, you could, you still, you know, there's, this is one of those things that there's, there's wiggle room. I think in the interpretation, if if you think it's a, a star and a constellation, there's good precedent for that. Uh, there, you know, there's this really interesting. Uh, the British Museum has this uh, called the broken obelisk, and it's it's an obelisk that's missing the top part. And and what you see is this um, king who is has captives in front of him, and um, there's this solar disk, you know, the the god in the solar disk, and then he's handing. Uh, a gesture there's like a gesture of blessing with one hand then the other hand is a bow um so there's a, a, perhaps a good depiction of you know a, a deity putting his bow uh, in the sky um yeah there's there's a lot of really interesting parallels there um and i'm you know as kyle and i were working on this i'm like i really like this idea that this is a star and kyle's like yeah i kind of think it might still be a rainbow um and yeah, I don't, I don't know who knows who's right. Um, that's we like to do that. Uh, you know, over on our channel, we like to kind of look at different interpretations and different different things that are more um, 
you know, sometimes it's easy to miss cultural things. Uh, and if we can highlight some of those, that's, we, that's our bread and butter. <laughs> yeah, that was actually uh, almost comical during the video. You guys were like, yeah, I think it was a bow. And I think it was a rainbow. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. All right. Well, Phil, uh, is there any anything else you wanted to add um, in regards to all we talked about? Um, no, I, I thanks for letting me uh, ramble. I, I love talking about this stuff. So uh, thanks for thanks for having me on. I I love what you guys what you're putting on. So keep up the good work. Thanks for having me. I know Kyle uh, wishes he could make it. Uh, he's a pastor and stuff comes up, so he couldn't make yeah. it today. But um, yeah, thanks for having me. I, I, I love the conversation. So appreciate yeah, it. No, this is a lot of fun. I learned some stuff. Um, hey, so uh, is there anything besides your YouTube channel where uh, people can get connected to you? Uh, obviously, you have your dissertation. Um, any, any books or anything like that you plan on writing? Um, I, you know, I have plans. I have four kids, so um, I have a lot of things I'd like to do, but um, haven't haven't been able to get them out yet. But uh, for now, you can find um, you know, youtube.com slash beneath the Bible. Um, we have a website that we're working on um, updating a bit uh, beneath the Bible .com. Uh, While I'm on my excavation, we are going to be posting on Instagram, uh, which is, is I think think just at beneath the bible um and we'll post pictures of our excavation and you know we'll kind of have a uh, what it's like on a dig kind of a thing so if you want to if you're ever curious on what it's like on an excavation we'll be posting from cyprus this summer so you can check us out that is super super cool and i'm i definitely might have to take you up on interviewing you again on that topic that'd be super cool yeah i'd love it Awesome, man. All right. Well, appreciate it, Philip, and I hope you have a good day. Hope everyone enjoyed, and um, I'll talk to you later, man. All right. Thanks. You too.